another Saturday morning has rolled around. Welcome, everybody, inside the outdoors. What, what a Saturday, too, huh? And how about the week we had? Unbelievable. You know, I thought a couple of weeks ago when we got that snow and those miserable temperatures in the 20s and 30s that we were headed for winter, and I guess we are, but at least we're taking our time right now because uh, Mother Nature is, I I don't know whether she's kind or cruel, but if we get used to this, I guess it's going to be cruel, but enjoy it while it lasts because, man, it's good. It's good for everything we've got going. It's good for any outdoor pursuit right now, with possible exception, I guess, of the snowmobilers. Um, They're crying a little bit because uh, the snow has come but folks it's going to so relax you're going to have plenty of time before it's all over with and those of us who uh who are tired of snow those of us who have been here for more years than we care to count and are tired of snow are just going to live in the moment and enjoy it so we got a great show today. We're going to talk fishing, obviously, uh, because especially with the uh, with the deer hunt, the general deer hunt closing. A lot of folks will not be hunting. They they might start to hunt uh, uh, migratory birds. They they may be doing some pheasant hunting. They may be doing some uh, uh, some upland game. But for the most part, I think about everybody has decided that uh, the hunting season, at least for the masses, is over once the general deer hunt, uh, the rifle hunt, is over. So uh, we'll we'll concentrate a little bit today on fishing. We're going to talk about. We've got an interesting story uh, about water situation and uh, what's going on with. The the uh, up um, up Parley's Canyon, and we're going to talk about that in a, in a potential problem with a dam that we've had around for a long time in this state that needs some real repairs. And so we're going to talk about that. Uh, we'll obviously talk with Gary and George. We'll visit with them as per usual. Uh, but we want to get started with a um, w- with a gentleman who's a regular. We were just laughing before we came on the air that I'm going to have to start sending Randy Oplinger, our sport fisheries coordinator, a talent fee because he's on the show probably as much as I am these days, but that's great because we get to find out exactly what is happening in the sport fish world here with the Division of Wildlife Resources and uh, in the state of Utah. So, Randy, welcome to the show. Thanks for doing this. We really do appreciate it. Um, and You guys have always got something, obviously, in the hopper, but um, the last couple of weeks or so, last week or so, I guess, you had a meeting of the uh, Cutthroat Slam organization, which um, is you guys uh, Trout Unlimited, and remind me the the third um, segment uh, of that trifecta that puts together the uh, Utah Cutthroat Slam, um, because that's the group, right? You guys are the ones that oversee what's going on with the Slam, and it's become quite a program. So, the third group, the third members of that group are. Department of Natural Resources. There we go. Okay, DNR. I got to get those guys in, right? We got to give them a got to give them a little bit of love as well. Uh, but you three, you three groups met last week to talk about maybe some changes uh, and some additions to the program, which has become uh, really one of the uh, for for those folks who love to fish for cutthroat. Uh, in this state, and there's a lot of them, it's become one of the really great programs because you've got the metal and everything else. Talk, just talk to us a little bit about the uh, the Cutthroat Slam program real quickly, how it came came to be, and um, and then let's talk about some of the new things that are on the horizon for it. Yeah, the Utah Cutthroat Slam program, really, it, it's a great program. It's something we uh, kind of conceived back in 2016, so that was the first time it was launched. And what it really is, and you kind of hit on this, it's really a collaboration between the Division of Wildlife Resources, the EWR, our DNR, so the Department of Natural Resources, and Trout Unlimited. And what it really is, is it's it kind of an opportunity where uh, cutthroat are really our native 
sport fish species that we have here in the state. So, you know, we talk about brown trout, and lake trout, and rainbow trout. Those are not native species. They're introduced here to the state. And cutthroat are one true native trout species that we have. And there's a time, if you go back to about maybe the 1970s, that cutthroat weren't doing very well here in Utah. And we've been doing a lot of work to restore cutthroat trout populations here in the state. And really, it's been kind of a success story where we've gone from just having a handful of populations in the state to really hundreds of populations here in Utah. And uh, the, the kind of premise behind the cutthroat plan program is we just wanted to continue some of the momentum that we had with some of our cutthroat restoration work. And in particular, a lot of this work costs us some money. So we're looking at some ways to generate some interest in cutthroat trout, some appreciation in cutthroat trout, and some just money that we could use for additional work to help us get additional cutthroat populations on the landscape. So what the program's really about is there's there's four different cutthroat trout subspecies that we recognize here in Utah. We have Bear River cutthroat trout, Bonneville cutthroat trout, Colorado River cutthroat trout, and Yellowstone cutthroat trout. And the idea is that anglers are able to spend a $20 entry fee and if they go and catch each of those four different subspecies and submit pictures for it, they get a certificate and a coin for their effort. And then what we're able to do is we're able to turn that $20 registration fee back into some funding that we use for cutthroat trout work here in the state. Now, you've raised, I understand, more than forty grand during the time that it's been going. It's not a huge, obviously, it's not a huge participatory thing for people because you really have to work at it, don't you? If you're going to get the four, I mean, it's certainly doable, obviously, but it requires a commitment on the part of the... The angler, and it's also a great way to, uh, to aid the conservation effort, too. So, I mean, it really uh, works as a win-win for both the fishery, obviously, and for the angler as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's definitely a challenge to get out there and catch all four different subspecies that we have. It requires you to really kind of get around the state a little bit and see some different areas. But I think it's a great opportunity. You know, it's a challenge for people, and it gets you to see some new places and gives you an opportunity to learn more about cutthroat trout here in the state, different subspecies, and what we have going on here in our state. Now, I know you you approved at this meeting on the 12th of November three projects, correct? Uh, One of them really is, is the conservation. And the others, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the two others are really uh, kind of kiosk and informational. Uh, let's let's talk about the project in uh, in the Red Cedar Creek in the Deep Creek Mountains. First of all, for those who are uninitiated, Deep Creek Mountains are where in northern Utah? They're kind of out in the West Desert area, so they're kind of uh, south of Wendover, kind of due west of maybe kind of the Provo area. Okay. So they're way out kind of near the Nevada border. Okay, and so this project is Red Cedar Creek, which is, um, I guess there are seven area, or seven streams in the area where Bonneville cutthroat trout historically were found, right? But, but over the last, I don't know how many years, the non-native rainbow have been uh, stocked and it started to really force the Bonneville cutthroat out of there. Yeah, if you go back about 10 or 15 years, we did a lot of work in the Deep Creek Mountains to reestablish Bonneville cutthroat trout out there. Um, Bonneville cutthroat trout are one of our subspecies of cutthroat trout, but then within the Bonnevilles, we kind of have this distinct group that are out in the West Desert, and we wanted to do some work to conserve those kind of West Desert Bonneville cutthroat trouts. So we did a lot of work in the, the Deep Creek Mountain Range. And anyway, one of the seven creeks we worked on was Red Cedar Creek, if you go back 10 or 15 years. And what we've seen since then is some rainbow trout got back into the system, and we did some work this fall to remove those rainbows, and we're looking to put cutthroat back in so we can restore it back to a pure cutthroat fishery. 
Now, it being such a remote area, um, how, how much pressure does it actually get? I mean, um, you know, I guess the question is the, the cost versus reward situation. Uh, how much as far as usage will it get? And, and how much is really just that you want to restore that conservation and restore that to historical population? It does get some usage out there, but I mean, admittedly, it's not the most heavily used part of the state when it comes to anglers, just because it's so remote and it's difficult to get to. So a lot of our work out there is really focused on kind of us, you know, recognizing that there's some intrinsic value in having cutthroat, and we want to do our best to kind of put cutthroat back into the landscape, sort of how they were historically. And, you know, we recognize that there was a group of cutthroat out there, and we just want to have them back on the landscape just to kind of represent what was out there historically. Sure. And and as far as uh, stocking those are concerned because of the remote area. I understand you guys are, are using aerial drops, helicopters to uh, to stock because it's so remote and hard to get to. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's it's a pretty rough country out there. We did do some restocking this fall, and I think we carried buckets something like two miles up the stream <laughs> to get the lower couple miles of the stream stocked with fish. And I think it took us. 10 hours or so to call those buckets. It's just rugged terrain and uh, slow walking. So we want to get some fish up in the higher portions of the creek, so we're looking at hiring a helicopter to help dump them off up there for us. Yeah, I don't imagine a two-mile bucket haul is uh, is one that you want to repeat, and I imagine uh, getting volunteers, uh, repeat volunteers for the project might have been a little tough, too, if you were going to do it that way again. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, it's it's pretty rough terrain. That was a hard walk, and I think you know, we recognize we need to get some fish up the headwaters, let's sure another three or four miles up the creek, and get doing a bucket haul isn't the way to get them up there. Yeah. The helicopter's a better way to go. Now, the other two projects are uh, are signage, basically, right? Signage and kiosk projects? Yeah, absolutely. We got one project kind of in the southern part of the state where they've really developed actually a, a very nice sign kind of advertising Bonneville Cup for a trout and their significance in the southern part of our state. And they just want to get some signs out in the landscape at some of our waters of Bonneville cutthroat trout just to educate the public about the importance of Bonnevilles and kind of their history in southern Utah. And I think they're looking at printing off some posters and things like that that could be distributed to kids and that kind of thing in schools. And then the other projects at Lake Canyon Lake, which is a Colorado River cutthroat trout brood population that we have sort of in the Duchesne area. And we take eggs annually from our Lake Canyon population, and they just want to put some signs up there talking a little bit about what we do at Lake Canyon and the importance of that population of cutthroat that we have in that lake. Well, uh, I'll tell you, we, we appreciate the efforts. It's certainly a great collaboration between you guys and, and uh, obviously DNR and Trout Unlimited to put this thing together. And it's one of those things that if you've got an angler that um, probably has done about everything, maybe this cutthroat slam is something that they want to tackle uh, just purely to say you got it done. I mean, it is uh, it is great, and it's a, a nice medal you get after uh, you finished. I mean, it, it's a little memento, but I, I think the... Uh, the two things, obviously, uh, the conservation side of things is huge, but also the uh, accomplishment that, hey, I, I did it because it's not easy to do and it does require a real uh, a real commitment to doing it. So, um, you know, we obviously hope that a lot of folks take advantage of it. If they want to get involved in it, how do they register? Obviously, with the uh, with the fall, maybe somebody wants to get started on it now in this fall fishing, but it'll be a spring thing. But how if somebody wants to get a uh, get involved in it besides their $20, where do they send the money and how do they register? Yeah, what you want to start on the Division of Wildlife webpage, so wildlife.utah.gov, and then there's some links on there to kind of our fishing section. 
And from there, you'll find out how to register for the Cutthroat Slam. But the idea behind it is you fill out the registration form, which is a lot like just getting a, a license for the Division of Wildlife. You spend your $20 fee. And then you're able to, from there, just go out and get your four fish. And there's some instructions on the webpage of where you can find them, what you have to do. But more or less, when you're all done, there's the completion form. And you submit pictures and just a little bit of information on where you caught each fish. And that's all you have to do. And, you know, like I said, this is like registering for a license. But the nice thing is a license that runs forever. So you could sign up right now, and you don't have to get it done by the end of the year. You don't right. have to get it done 365 days from now. You could do it five years from now it can be a it can be a multi-year project and probably will be for a lot of folks out there so randy thank you we appreciate you joining us and um you know thanks for the update uh, not only today but throughout the year it's nice to be able to come to you and and find out what the heck is going on because as i've said before and i will continue to say it you guys do a terrific job i think our our sport fishing in the state of utah is as good as you're going to find anywhere around the country and uh, and that license fee is the best dollars you'll ever spend as far as value for your dollars yeah absolutely and thank you so much for your support of us all right randy oplinger who is our sport fisheries coordinator and uh we like to to now say he is a regular on this program because randy always gives us some great stuff listen we're gonna step aside we'll take the break when we come back uh george will be up in the hot seat and we'll find out from him remember he said he was headed for lake powell so we'll find out what the fishing looks like uh, a week later that report he gave us last week was all in anticipation of what he had a chance to do this week so we'll step aside we'll be back with more right after this and welcome back everybody inside the outdoors on this saturday morning and uh, we are now talking as advertised to george summer who joins us at this time every week and i can't wait to find out how his lake powell trip went so uh, george you told us last week you were planning on going south doing some r&d i assume the trip came off let's talk about it Oh, I did. You know, it, it, it came off, and it came off well. And, you know, this this weather pattern we're having is just phenomenal for, for going down to Powell. And, and uh, you know, the, the trip was incredible. Um, the fishing was really good. Um, I, I did have one challenge, which was, you know, staying on the fish. Ah, we know um, what you need. And, and, Yes, and I'm going to fix that too because <laughs> well, let me tell you, we we go find the fish, and, and and it was kind of different. If you if there were tons of shad and there were fish in the shad, I could catch fish, mm-hmm. but I'd find these fish outside of those balls of shad, and we'd catch two or three fish on them, and then I we'd drift off while we were netting fish and stuff, and then I couldn't get back on them, um, so I'd have to go back and find some other fish. Well, there was plenty of fish in there to be caught doing that but if i could have stayed on those schools i could have caught all of them yeah and i mean it was just a, an incredible experience and you know now's the time to get down and do it because there are tons of stripers and they're all healthy well you know because of your time spent at sportsman's warehouse that that uh, that mincota with a spot lock on it the anchor lock that will hold you from a gps standpoint over within about a three or four foot radius of a specific location is what you got to get because and we talked about it on this program. I, I've got one, you know, for, for the uh, tracker that I have right now. And 
uh, it has saved my my fishing days so many times because you you simply you know hit that spot lock and it will hold you if you're jigging. There's, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're jigging kokanee up at the gorge or, you know, trying to jig uh, bluegill or crappie or whatever. That will just hold you over that same area. Now, schools move, obviously, but in this situation, it sounds to me like that would have uh, certainly enhanced your fishing day. You know, exactly. You know, we could have loaded the boat. We did it. We did good, you know, catching uh, stripers. And we caught some smallmouths in the same area. But we could have we'd have stayed on those schools because they were active. You know, once when they were outside of the shad balls, they, it seemed like they were hungry. And you could you found them outside. You'd catch them. Um, and they weren't as deep as I thought they would be. We uh, If we tried 60 or 70 feet, I caught a couple of fish at that depth. But if they were in 45 feet of water and they were outside of the shad balls, we caught them. Yeah. And, and we caught everything. We caught smallies. My wife caught a, a 10-plus-pound catfish. Oh, that's fun. Um, <laughs> yes, it was. And, uh, you know, and so obviously we used jigging spoons. And, and I'll tell people one key thing that we found was uh, change the regular treble out for a red, uh, you know, red feather treble. Yep. Um, that seemed to, to, to work a lot better. Um, they're just a plain treble or even a white one. And so when we did that, uh, the, our catch rate just went up. You know, it's funny you should say that because uh, and that's something that years and years ago I was fishing slab jigs the same way. And uh, the, the, feather, the feathered red treble that came on the slab jig uh, on those jigs was out catching the other probably 5, 10 to 1. And uh, it, they just, there's something about that red that they like, especially with that white feather around it. I assume the feather was white on the, was white on the tail, but uh, at least it was in the, in the day that we were looking at it. And, man, I'll tell you. It did. It just seemed to be such a huge difference. The guys fishing that red treble were able to catch, you know, seven, ten to one over the others. Yeah, and, and we noticed that our our, our catch rate uh, picked up quite a bit when we did that. Um, mine already had it on there. Mine was with the, with the red, uh, white feathers with red thread, and then I put a, a red, all red one on yeah. on my wife's spoon, and, and it just seemed to be that that was the ticket. And, you know, getting over those fish, you get over there, and, and you know, if you graft them, then you could drift off them for 10 feet or so, and that's where that spot lock would be awesome because you're still in them. They, they right. would come that far. But if you were, you know, more than 10 feet off, you didn't get them, and then you'd have to go back and find them. And, uh, I mean, it was just – it was a lot of fun. And, you know, if I could afford it, I'd go back down there again. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, what I'm going to do. The new spot lock, the new uh, Minn Kota, has got that self-deploying trolling motor. And as an old guy, I'm getting sick of running up on the bow <laughs> and having to push it off and then get back again and having to lift it up, uh, especially if you've got any kind of wave action or whatever. I don't need a head-first dive into the, uh, into the lake at my age. So my next purchase from Minn Kota is going to be the self-deploying with the spot lock on it, and then I figure I'll really have it made. Yes, and, and I'm I'm going to upgrade to one with a spot lock. Um, I, I don't need to self-deploy. But, <laughs> well, know, I'll sell you mine, okay, because I'm looking to get rid of mine. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll make you a heck of a deal on a spot lock, but you're going to have to push it off the bow yourself. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, that's a, that's a key thing. At this time of year, when those fish are schooled up, and if you can stay on them, you're going to catch them. Yeah. And, and that was one thing that we weren't able to do. And, and uh, we still caught fish, but I think we could have caught a lot more fish if we'd have been able to stay on top of those active schools. And, 
you know, it's it's the weather as it was in the six about mid sixties, um, no wind. And and the fish were cooperative. So, uh, I mean, what more could you ask? Absolutely, for? absolutely. Did you uh, did you get any size to those fish? The biggest one we caught was around four and a half, five pounds. Oh, that, but, that's, that's um, good. Good fish in a striper, though. I, well, and the little ones we caught a bunch of that were about fourteen inches, uh-huh. fourteen to sixteen inches. Those fish were fat, and we got some great fillets off those fish. So, um, yeah, I didn't mind catching those little guys because they were they were all healthy. That must so mean, everything from the. It yeah. must mean it's a good year for uh, for shad, obviously. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's an excellent year. You know, we went. I went. Uh, we seem to find them off main lake cuts, and we went in one cut. And I, I kid you not, Steve, that thing was was from front to back shad ball, and <laughs> and there were fish in there. But we found that if if there, the shad were in there and the fish were in the shad, we weren't getting them on spoons. Yeah. So if we found fish outside of the shad ball, then we could catch them. You know, and just a tip for folks going down there, if you're looking for uh, for areas of the lake, uh, Wayne Gustavison, who's the head fisheries guy, if you go to wayneswords.com, it's a website that Wayne updates on a daily basis, basically. But he finds, uh, he finds where those stripers are throughout the lake, and he'll post them. And I'll tell you, that thing will put you right on stripers. I mean, every every cut, every every canyon, he is going to have, in his Wayne's words, um, he is going to have right where you need to go and what you need to use. So just a just a tip for those who, you know, you make that drive, you spend that money. You may as well spend a little bit of time and, and uh, figure out where you're going to go as well, because there's a lot of shoreline on that lake. Well, exactly. And if you can cut some of that, because the price of fuel... Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's phenomenal. I, I spent more money on fuel than anything else. And if you can cut some of that down um, and, and hit some key points, um, you're going to save some money on fuel and you're going to catch a lot of fish. Yeah. Yeah. Well, George, glad you made it. Uh, we appreciate the R&D. I mean, it's always a, a good sign for us. Um, anything else you've heard? I mean, I'm sure you being gone for the week, you've been a little bit out of the loop. But I know that the Wasatch Front uh, reservoirs are still fishing great. You know, the Deer Creeks and the Echoes and the Rockports and the East Canyons, those are still all. And as long as this weather stays the way it is, I think they will continue to do so. You'll get these days with no wind and uh, beautiful conditions. This Indian summer, uh, it is absolutely a perfect time if you're out on, out on a boat or if you're fishing from the shore. It's just the perfect time to be on the reservoirs. Yeah, and I agree 100%. You know, that's I haven't got any current reports, but you know, you can't go wrong with Deer Creek right now, yeah. Rockport, and, and we're going to have some excellent perch fishing through the ice. Yeah, that's uh, we don't want it too soon, okay? I, you know, especially, yeah. I, I know you ice fishermen <laughs> are chomping at the bits, and some of you have been up there already to the UNs, and more power to you, okay? But uh, for those of us who are just enjoying the soft water right now, we hope it stays for a while. I'd love nothing better than to get into December and still be fishing days like this at Deer Creek. And a couple of years ago, I think about the about the 18th to the 24th of December we had days like this and I fished Deer Creek and just just hammered him so I know it can be done um, and and I know also that that other hard water is just around the corner yes indeed George thanks my friend uh, you got anything planned this week or are you gonna have to actually go work well I'm, I'm, I've got to work this week but I'm hoping to get out next week you know my days off and do some more R&D and, okay and uh We'll have another report next week. We will look forward to that, my friend. Thank you, and uh, uh, and make that transition back to work. Yeah, I know it's going to be tough after spending the days at Powell. Yeah, 
It is, believe me. All right. Talk to you next week, George. Thanks. Thanks, Steve. I hope this brings a smile to your face like it does to mine every week. You know, we changed this about, what, almost a year ago now, maybe from uh, I Ain't Gonna Take It, which was which was the theme for uh, Gary Winterton and Hooked on Utah. And I know it's, you know, it's that redheaded attitude and everything else. And we went with that for several years. And I just thought we needed a change of scenery. And so we found the Opie music. And then we find out last week that when he was in college and when he was in New Orleans, that his badge on the hotel he worked at said Opie. So uh, there's something just fortuitous. There's something that was uh, just meant to be about having that music. So uh, we welcome in the ginger ninja, the, uh, the, the red-haired wonder himself, Canelo we call him Canelo around here. Canelo, with yeah. GW, how you doing? I am doing awesome. Yeah, it's funny, Steve, how things are just apropos, and I think uh, I think this uh, music just fits perfect. It just, I don't know, it just brings a smile to my face. And maybe that's only because I'm old. Maybe it doesn't do any anything. Adrian's behind the glass, and he's just kind of going, oh, yeah, right, okay, who cares? Because Adrian's young, he doesn't care. You know, it's like, yeah. the, the, the music. Adrian doesn't, he's never even watched it. He doesn't even know The music, what it is. right? Adrian, he's shaking his head. Open the mic, Adrian. He's just shaking his head here, right? I mean, that music does nothing for you, right? No, I've heard it. You heard it? <laughs> Outside of the show, and I have seen clips. Really? So you, okay, the Andy Adrian, Griffith show. Wow. You you need to Google it. You need to watch at least one or two episodes <laughs> so that you know what's going on here. All right. I'll check that out so I know who we're talking to. You know, Gary, exactly. the, the deal is, Gary, that that his attitude is we're not paying him enough to have to sit through the Andy Griffith show. So, <laughs> especially in black and white. You said it. Right? I'm, yeah. So, he he's probably not going to do it. But it's okay because he does a great job for us behind the, the mic anyway and makes sure the music comes in. But Oh, yeah. He's I, the magic man. He makes it, he makes it great. I, I, just, I just like the music, like I said. It, it, it brings... It, even if the weather is not good, which, of course, it has been great lately, um, it still brings that, that feeling of summer, doesn't it, uh, to those of us old enough to remember it? And with the fact that you've got the red hair and the opie, um, the whole thing just works, as far as I'm concerned. So so we welcome you in, and uh, and what are we going to talk this week? Because you, you made the little trip down south uh, a couple of days ago, and uh, tonight we've got to look at one of the reservoirs that maybe doesn't get enough pub in this state. Yeah. You know, so it started out, we were headed to Huntington. We were going to go fish right. Huntington. And as we got closer to Huntington, uh, we were talking in the truck, and I said, oh, why don't we just go to Joe's Valley? I've never been there before, and I've never fished it. So we just passed Huntington, you know, went into Orangeville, turned and went up to Joe's Valley. And I have to tell you, it was unbelievable. There was one other small boat on the lake. It was it was perfectly flat glass gorgeous not a cloud in the sky um and it was also a really good experience because having never been there um you know you got to put your boat on and then you got to say okay well we wanted to try to catch some flake you know there's cutthroat and rainbow in there there are tiger muskies in there and so we thought all right we're just gonna we're gonna start off either casting the jerk baits or trolling we decided to cover some water with trolling but you know one of the things when you go to a new lake is trying to break it down and figure out where are these fish going to be. Are they going to be up in the shallows, the flats? Are they going to be hanging off the deeper stuff? So it took us literally, it took about an hour to find some fish trolling. And what was interesting, Steve, is 
you know, I really had high expectations because you see pictures come out of Joe's Valley with these big splake and big cuts. We could not find them at first. Um, and uh, so we trolled for quite a while. And then we started finding them. They were, you know, they were hanging off the boulders and the big chunk rock, not out in the open hmm. uh, middle or the flats, which that's kind of where I thought they would be um, sunning in the shallower waters, you know, that 20 to 15 foot range. Yeah. But man, it, it was tough to find them at first. Well, and, you know, you bring up a great point, And I, I learned it from. I didn't learn how to do it, but I learned the concept from the guys years and years ago, back in the late '70s, when I got to fish a lot with the BASS guys. You know, when they were when they were fishing a tournament, and these guys would come in from the from uh, the south and come into Lake Powell. And I've said, the, given the story before, but Elliot Wolf who had Wolf Sporting Goods years ago, was a great guy and really kind of pioneered bass fishing in Utah because every spring he would he would organize a group and go down to Lake Powell and provide the houseboats, and he would bring these pros in. And, you know, they would come from these shallow southern lakes with the water temperature warm and, they would, and, and muddy, and they would come to fish Lake Powell. And, uh, and, you know, of course, obviously everything is different, deep water and clear water and everything else. And uh, it would take them about... Uh, five minutes to go find a fish, and uh, and then they would just load the boat with big with big bass and crappie and everything else. And they told me the, the secret. You know, it's the fish doesn't know whether it's in Lake Powell or if it's um, if it's in Florida. It doesn't know. It just looks for habitat, and and that's the same way when you're talking about this this uh, experience at Joe's Valley. You're looking for habitat. The fish is going to find what is the most comfortable for it. You've got to find that on the lake, and when you put the two together, you're going to catch fish. Absolutely, and I think that's spot on. And it's you just have to say to yourself, okay, based on this lake and structure. You know, where, where, where do I think those fish will be? And here's where, you know, you always hear this, you've heard this many times, you know, people who don't fully understand how, how um, Navionics and fish finders work, they believe it gives you this advantage to go just pinpoint the fish and make them bite. <laughs> what it really does is gives you a chance to see the structure and the depth and temperature. Uh, and, and so, you know, we utilized our... our technology to just go find some structure and and then we started finding fish and you know steve i'll tell you if you want to find the use the best search date if it's casting or trolling in my opinion over the last few years i've just come to this based on experience that the ghost minnow lucky craft pointer 78 bar none is the best bait for me for finding fish you can cast and walk a bank you can cast and walk the Provo River, Weber River, whatever river, or you can troll it. And we just put them up on the surface and trolled. And once we found the structure, we started catching fish. Um, and we, we started catching some nice fish, some small ones as well. And, you know, then we went into these coves and inlets and started casting again, and we started catching the splake. And that bait just, it produces, there's something about it. It mimics a bait size, a movement, a vibration. But, you know, that was really fun. Now, I was a little disappointed. The show is awesome. People are going to love it. And we catch good fish, but we didn't catch any of the big splake that I was hoping for. But it, it made me uh, really want to come back because this lake is absolutely gorgeous. And I'm going to, you know, if it freezes, it's going to be one of my first lakes I'm going to go up and ice fish off of. I actually mark some spots um, where I think it will hold fish in the winter. I want to get up there and try to pull a big splake through the ice. 
Well, that sounds like fun, and uh, and then obviously next spring the tiger muskie up there sound like uh, they would be an obvious target as well. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna we're running out of time in the segment, but I'm gonna ask you one more time so that folks can uh, can flood Sportsman's Warehouse and go buy them out of the uh, Ghost Minnow. Tell us again the size and everything else for the Ghost Minnow that you were using that you think is is kind of a universal bait. It is. If you'll go into your local sportsman's warehouse, ask them where the Lucky Craft lures are. Listen, they cost a little bit more. They're, they're about $14, but they're a 10-to-1 bait on catching fish. It's the Pointer 78. You can get the Pointer 100 or the 120, but I use the Pointer 78. Ghost Minnow or Rainbow Ghost Minnow. Those are my two favorite colors. And if they don't have them, ask them to go check in the back. But those two right there, you can fish those on any trout or bass water, and you are going to catch fish um, over and over. It's just one of the most effective baits out there. Well, we are looking forward to the show tonight. It runs at 11.05, right after Talking Sports on KUTV Channel 2, and uh, it is going to be on Joe's Valley. It is hooked on Utah with the man himself, Gary Winterton, and um, so check it out tonight, Joe's Valley. It's got to be a great show. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Uh, I haven't fished Joe's Valley in years, to be honest with you. I uh, used to take my kids up there and uh, and camp, take the motor home, take the boat, and it's a, it's a great reservoir. Not a big reservoir, not a lot of water space there, but you got to know where you're going. So tonight, pay careful attention, and uh, we'll just see what uh, GW and company can produce. So I didn't get the invite on this one, but um, you know that's another story for another day. <laughs> you were out of town. You were. I out was. Of town, you I was. I was. I have to admit that. Hey, listen. Uh, good to talk to you, Gary. We'll talk to you next week. Okay. Awesome. Uh, stay safe. And uh, we'll see you on the water. All right. Gary Winterton, Hooked on Utah tonight, 1105 Channel 2, right after talking sports. We'll step aside. When we come back, interesting story about uh, some dam issues potentially here in the uh, in the Wasai's front area and what's being done about them. Stick around. <laughs> Final segment of the show on this Saturday morning. What a beautiful Saturday it is as we welcome you back to Inside the Outdoors. You know, I mentioned off the top of this program uh, that we had an issue that we were dealing with that, uh, as far as I was concerned, was something that we probably ought to all be aware of because... um, because it, it affects everybody, and certainly the people in the Salt Lake Valley, because uh, as we, as most of us, I think, know, our water supply comes out of the um, uh, Mountain Dell and Little Dell Reservoirs up the uh, Parley's Canyon. And um, it is, obviously, it's one of those areas that we worry about the uh, condition of the water, about the quality of it, and everything else. But that dam, uh, Mountain Dell, has been there for a long, long time. And it's getting to the point that, or has gotten to the point already, that this dam... Uh, is uh, is not in good condition. The concrete is not good. Uh, the structure is in jeopardy. Um, a, a breach of the co- of the uh, dam itself would cause some real real problematic issues. Maybe loss of life isn't one of them because it's not that big and certainly downstream you're not looking at something like you were in Idaho with the Teton Dam, but you you are looking at some issues here. And so um, 
thought that this would be a good opportunity to uh, to try and find out exactly a what the what the problem is and b what the potential solutions are. So with that in mind, we welcome David Marble, who is the Utah Assistant State Engineer, uh, to join us on the phone this Saturday morning. Uh, David, thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. It's good to be with you. This is a dam, obviously. I mean, everybody who goes up Parley's knows about Mountain Dale. Um, you know, it's one of those dams that it really wasn't much involved in the sport fishing community for a long period of time because the amount of, of access and recreation to it was very limited. Uh, there, there are some obviously some nice fish in there. Uh, it is an area that I think a lot of people have looked at that and Little Dell and said, wow, you know, it's, uh, it's just a a nice addition to our state but lately you have not been able to fill that dam and you've got that reservoir and you've got some real issues with the structure talk to me about where we are with it today okay um yeah a couple of things we'd just like to maybe just make sure that the the, those listening would uh, would be able to appreciate the dam is uh has been around for a long time Uh, you you referenced it's it's about 100 years old and and as you indicated, the you know with, with that kind of age, concrete begins to deteriorate and that kind of thing. Uh, as, as water has kind of worked its way through the concrete of that dam, uh, there, there's been just some freeze thaw action that is leading to some deterioration and that kind of thing of the uh, of the downstream face of the of the dam itself that we're concerned about. And and because of that, uh, just the age and issues related to that, we're you know we consider the dam right now to be in, in poor condition. That's an assessment. Of the, of the condition that it's in poor because of just of that deterioration that's, that's, that's taking place. Now, I, I do want to just make sure everyone understands that that the poor condition does not mean that in some way we think there's an imminent failure or right. something that's going to be developing. Right now, in its current state, it, I would say that it still continues to meet dam safety criteria uh, that, that, that we would apply to it to, to, to make sure that it is not um, uh, not creating or, or does not make a, an unreasonable risk to, to downstream population or, 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 or property. And so we're not really to that point. The, the, the poor hazard rating, or excuse me, that's not that, the, the poor condition assessment is really an acknowledgement that we that it needs a facelift and that we need to get some work done on it to to, to, to correct that situation and to to, to make sure that, that we we arrest that deterioration and 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 and, and bring it back to, to a to a more satisfactory condition so when we look at this I understand I mean obviously uh, you've been aware of it and I think the city that owns it uh, Salt Lake has been aware of it for quite a while it's not like nothing is being done on this correct I mean they're trying to obviously not only deal with the dam itself but maybe upstream from it I understand a liner is being put in which hopefully would slow the leaks down a little bit Yes, that's absolutely correct. There's a, there's an upstream liner that's being applied to the up, to the upstream face of the dam right now as as we speak. Uh, it's 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 going into place. And this is really a sophisticated uh, a liner system. It's it's not just plastic and glue or something like that. This is a really sophisticated uh, lining system that is that has a very proven track record of of being very helpful in correcting these kinds of seepage problems on these kinds of dams. And so we're quite hopeful that what that will do is is cut off 
uh, the seepage issues, uh, and, and then we can take a, a you know a further look in another step at some point to say, okay, what kind of damage has been done and what needs to be to be done to that. But 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 this would at least stop the 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 aggravating problems that the water getting through and then freeze thaw is causing the deterioration of the uh, of the concrete. If we can stop and cut off that water, then then we can stop the source of the deterioration, and that that should stabilize things until we can. And I do anticipate that there will still be some additional phase work to, 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 to stabilize the, the, the dam fully. There, I guess this is a category of dam called high hazard, right? I mean, it, uh, it, it, and it, and it does not talk necessarily the category about the, the condition of the dam necessarily, but the ramifications of failure. It would create a high hazard uh, based on, uh, I guess, population and everything else. But is this this is one of those high hazard dams that you've got to make sure stays intact? You're absolutely correct. Yes, it is rated as a high hazard dam, and that hazard rating is considered consequences given a dam failure. That that in and of itself is not an assessment of the condition of the dam. But yes, so it is high hazard, and because of that potential risk to downstream life and property, we're very concerned about that and pay a lot of attention. We don't own or operate or regulate, or excuse me, we don't own or operate the dam. We regulate the dam. The owner is Salt Lake City, and they're responsible for maintenance and taking care of the dam, that kind of thing. Ours is a regulatory role where we work with them to oversee that that the work that they're doing is appropriate for the dam. And this, how long has this been? I I guess, I assume it's been quite a while that you've known that there's an issue and that the city has known with the age of this dam. I mean, everything fails, and within 100 years, you've got to expect, obviously, some deterioration. But as far as actually working on this and doing something about it, how, how extensive and, and long a process has it been? It's been it, it's been a, a few years, um, and it's not like there hasn't been work done on the dam before. I, I think there was some remedial work done on it 20, 25 years ago, something like that. And uh, you know, over the last few years, we've just noticed more uh, signs of deterioration on the downstream face. So we've been working with Salt Lake City actually for some time to put together a, a plan to address it. As you can imagine, with, with Salt Lake City, they've got uh, a substantial number of uh, budgetary responsibilities they have, and trying to to, to, to uh, make arrangements so that they have the budget to deal with the problems has been one issue. Uh, the, there's also this is really also also a multi-phase project, really. Uh, you know, uh, one phase was already done previously because I think you, you, you referenced that the water supply really comes through Mountain Dell into the Parties Creek water treatment plant, and in order to lower the reservoir, that takes water away from the tree plant, and so that's been a substantial issue. There was a previous project done last year to, to put in a pipeline that could bypass the reservoir so that water could still uh, be directed to the treatment plant while lowering the reservoir to, to, to work on the dam. So it's actually a, a multi phase project and we're in at least the second of, of those phases and there will be other phases to come. I guess the word that uh, we want to let people know though is that there's no need to panic. I mean this is not a situation where you've got a leaking dam and at any moment you could get a breach and a torrent of water could come downhill and kill thousands of people in Salt Lake City. I mean we're, we're, we're not looking at that in real terms, correct? You're absolutely correct, yes. Even with the deterioration, we've had some, some structural analyses done of the dam, and in its current condition, even with the deterioration that's taken place, it still exceeds the safety standards that are required for the dam. And so, again, we're, we're addressing remedial, pro, uh, you know, re- remedial project to fix the problems before it becomes critical. It's not critical yet. 
Well, uh, we appreciate you joining us, David. I, I thought it was an interesting story. I mean, obviously, uh, as with uh, those of us who are also getting older, a lot of things start to fail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we've, we've got to deal with rehab components. Uh, we've got to rehabilitate some components here in this old body, and I'm sure that 100 years uh, of damn work uh, has got to, be, uh, got to be helped as well. But it sounds as though the handle is on that. Now, from a funding standpoint, is this funding coming from the city? Are they having to fund it, or is it a joint venture with the state? How has that happened? This project is being funded fully by, by the city. Okay. Uh, we are rehabilitating many dams around the state, other high-hazard dams around the state that, that have issues. We, the, the state does have a funding program to help with those projects, but this particular project is being funded uh, strictly by the city. Well, again, I, I appreciate it, and I, I'm sure that uh, you know a lot of folks who originally heard this probably thought, gee, are we looking at an imminent flooding situation? And the answer is obviously no. Right. We appreciate it again, David. Thank you for joining me and for kind of clarifying, letting us know what happened. And uh, again, the good news is that everyone seems to be on top of this thing. It's not playing catch up. We're out in front of it and uh, some preventative stuff as well as some restorative uh, things as well. I think that's exactly right. Yes. All right. Great. Thanks again. You betcha, Steve. Thank you. That's David Marvel with the uh, State Engineering Office talking about the uh, the Mountain Dell Dam up there. You know, obviously, it's one that is important for ver- a variety of reasons, uh, mostly because of our drinking water and and everything else associated with it. But it's uh, it's definitely something that um, that we want to keep an eye on. And it sounds like the state is definitely out in front of that. That is going to do it for us. That's going to wrap it up for us here on the program today. And uh, I want to thank David for joining us. I want to thank Randy Opplinger, our state fisheries coordinator, for letting us know about the uh, cutthroat slam. I want to thank Gary and George, as always, for letting us know what's going on in the out of doors. Sounds like Powell might be the place to be from a weather standpoint and from a fishery standpoint as well. Either way, get on out and enjoy this weather this week. Might get to change a little bit, but uh, I'll tell you what, it's a gorgeous fall has uh, reappeared on the horizon. Make sure you enjoy it. Thanks for joining me. And uh, hope you'll join me again next Saturday morning. 8 o'clock is the start time right here. 97.5 The Zone is the station. And we'll be back then. So until then, as always, my friends, you have been warned. 